Okay, Verizon says Verizon says it is 9:30. So let's get started. As you're turning to Acts chapter 18, if you don't remember where we left off at a uh, week before last, that's where we start this morning. I hope you had wonderful, wonderful uh, Thanksgiving. Just a little bit of uh, housekeeping before we jump into the text. Uh, obviously, we're here today. And then there's two more Wednesdays before we take a break uh, on Wednesdays here. So we're here the next two weeks following today, and then we kind of do our Christmas break. Um, if you come, at, if you show up three weeks from today, you can have a Quaker meeting or small group discussion or something. But uh, so do, remember that as you plan your very, 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 very busy holiday season. So we are in Acts chapter 18. Um, where did we leave Paul at two weeks ago? What city? Corinth. Very good. Uh, your brain cells are still connected and working. That's a good thing. We left Paul in Corinth, uh, so he is continuing to travel on. Uh, look at verse 18, chapter 18. After this, and again, that after this is tying you to Corinth. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers, and he set sail for Syria. Um, that Syria is pretty much the same Syria that you know of today. Same area, same region, one of the early centers of, uh, Christi of Christianity. And of course, in Syria, as you're going to be reminded, in Syria is the city of Antioch. Uh, the city of Antioch was the base of Paul's ministry. Uh, the city of Antioch there in Syria... People, I run across people today that think Syria is all Muslim. It's not. It's, a, it's one of the earliest areas of Christian uh, growth and development. But Antioch was the second center of Christianity after Jerusalem. So that's, that's, ho that's Paul's home base from which he gets sent out on missionary journeys. And uh, that's why he's heading back there. He is bringing his second missionary tour, which we've been on for a while, He's bringing his second missionary tour to an end, which means, guess what comes next? His third missionary tour. But he's heading back to his home base in Antioch, Syria, um, before he begins his third missionary tour. So after this, Paul stayed many days longer there in Corinth and then took leave of the brothers and he set sail for Syria. And with him, Priscilla and Aquila. Uh, we talked about Priscilla and Aquila in Corinth because that's where Paul met up with uh, Priscilla and Aquila. It was there in Corinth after they uh, had been banished with all the Jews from Rome around the year 49 um, AD uh, by Emperor Claudius. Uh, they worked together for those 18 plus months there in Corinth. So when Paul leaves Corinth, and this tells us something really important, when Paul leaves Corinth, uh, he takes... Aquila and Priscilla, Priscilla and Aquila with him. Uh, one of the things that tells us is evidently Paul and Priscilla and Aquila felt like there was significant Christian leadership there in Corinth. And we know that Corinth continued to grow and thrive as a Christian community. So he takes Priscilla and Aquila with him. At Syncrete, now watch this. This is very interesting. This may be a completely new territory for you. At Sincrae, he had his he had he had cut his hair. Sincrae, by the way, is about five miles from Corinth. It's, it's one of the two ports of Corinth. 
Remember that Corinth sits on an isthmus between two, two seas. Sincrae is the port that is sitting there uh, on the Aegean Sea. So he's just five miles from, from Corinth at this point. At that place, it's noted he had cut his hair there. So you need to look at what's going on here. At Sincrae, he had cut his hair for he was under a vow. Uh, let's talk about that a minute. Why did he do that? Why does the Holy Spirit and sacred scripture think it necessary to tell you about Paul's haircut? Um, you may remember the term Nazarite or Nazarite vows. Uh, you can read the opening verses of number six, and there in number six, you can learn about Nazarite vows. Um, the Nazarite vow was a, a special vow of consecration um, for particular reasons unto God. Uh, again, if you read about it in Numbers, that shows you how ancient the Nazarite vow was in Judaism. Uh, when you read about it in Numbers 6, you'll see that when you take a Nazarite vow, uh, there's several things you refrain from during this special season of consecration commitment spiritual renewal, uh, you, you refrain from cutting your hair, you refrain from drinking wine, because it wasn't grape juice, but you refrain from great, drinking wine, uh, you refrain, um, like most good Jews do anyway, refrain from touching uh, corpses uh, for that season that you are living out your Nazarite vow. Now, particularly early on in Jewish history, some of the people who had taken Nazarite vows or parents took them for the child. Um, there's history of parents taking spiritual vows for the child. Um, parents could take Nazarite vows for the child and the child would live his, uh, almost always his, live his whole life as a Nazarite. Uh, you know of some of these people. Samson was one of them. Remember, when Delilah went after his power, what did she do? She cut his hair. Because he was a Nazarite. He did not cut his hair. Samuel was a Nazarite. So early on in Hebrew history, Nazarites frequently, that was a lifetime commitment. By the time you get to first century AD, Paul's era, um, there may have still been some lifelong Nazarites. But what was happening in first century Judaism was that Nazarite vow was, taking, was taken more so for a season, a, a defined time period. Uh, you did it as a special act of, of gratitude to God. Uh, you took this Nazarite vow. So obviously Paul took a Nazarite vow. He took his Nazarite vow. He, re, he refrained from cutting his hair. Uh, he does it here at Sincrea. He cuts his hair here at Sincrea, um, because he's, he's leaving where? He's leaving Corinth. So he became a Nazarite, evidently, during some of the time that he was in Corinth. Um, you should say, hmm, should I become a Nazarite? Uh, you, should, you need to know something about this, because Paul was interested in this. Uh, he, probably, he probably took the Nazarite vow, uh, as a sign of gratitude to God for both protection and spiritual success. 
while he was there in Corinth. Again, just look at what went on in Corinth and say, in light of what went on in Corinth, why would Paul have taken a Nazarite vow? Well, he, 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 you know, they came after him there like they do in a lot of cities. So he, he, was, he was given physical protection by God. But he did bear great fruit. He bore great fruit there. The other thing that should strike you even more strongly is the Jewish nature of the Apostle Paul. Uh, again, I've said several times in several different settings because Christians need to get this one right. Um, because you don't want to be anti-Semitic. You don't want to be anti-Jewish. You don't want to say dumb things about Jews. Um, Paul never, never, never says that Jewish people ought to stop keeping the law. What Paul is always arguing for in the New Testament when he appears to be arguing against the law, the law of Moses, is don't, don't lay the law of Moses on us Gentiles. We don't have to. But Paul absolutely never said to the Jewish community, you need to stop it. If you embrace Christ, quit keeping kosher. Quit being circumcised. Quit observing the Sabbath. Uh, forget about Nazarite vows. And you're going to continue to see in the book of Acts where Paul acts very, very Jewish. So here he is. Uh, he's finishing a Nazarite vow. So he is cutting his hair. Uh, what you do, and this is, going to, this is going to determine his agenda or his itinerary. What you do, go back to number six, what you do when you cut your hair, you don't just throw it away. You offer it originally in the tabernacle or later on you offer it in the temple. It's a thank offering to God. So you have to cut your hair and hold on to it. So um, Paul is cutting his hair. He's a good Jew. He's taken an Azurite vow. So when you think about what he has to do with his hair, just take a guess. Where is he going to? Jerusalem. Thank you. He's going to Jerusalem. He's going to the temple. Yeah, I mean, he's a good Jew. Don't ever read the New Testament thinking Paul's Christian and these other people are, are Jewish. Or Jesus is Christian, the Pharisees are Jewish. These are all Jewish people talking to each other about how to be Jewish. And, and, and the Jews never, after they embraced Christ, their life changed. But um, they didn't just all of a sudden let go of all their Jewish practices. That's why if you want to keep Passover, that's great. You don't have to. It can be very beneficial. You might find it very beneficial. Uh, but again, I shouldn't be saying this because I'm holding a copy of the New Testament, uh, which I had professors always used to rail against. We kept the Old Testament as part of our sacred scripture. Your Old Testament is much sacred scripture as New Testament. So uh, when you see things like Paul being very, very Jewish, that should spur you on to make sure you know the Old Testament as well as you know the New Testament. Some Christians just never do anything with the Old Testament. But anyway, he had taken the Nazarite vow. He's getting ready to leave Corinth. The Nazarite vow was connected to Corinth, probably a, a vow of, of gratitude for protection and spiritual success. So he cuts his hair, um, keeps it somehow, and then he's, he sits out. But you know where his ultimate destination is going to be because he's carrying his hair with him. Uh, he's going to Jerusalem. So look at verse 19. 
and they came to Ephesus. That's en route to Jerusalem. That's en route to Syria. Uh, Ephesus is, is probably the most important city connected with Paul. He spends his longest season of his life there. Um, it's, 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 it's the major city in Asia Minor, um, present-day Turkey. It was an enormous city. Um, could have had upwards of 200,000 people in it. Uh, if you've been to, how many of you been to Ephesus and seen the ruins in Ephesus? Good, several of you have. It's absolutely amazing. It is the largest outdoor museum in the world because it's the largest archeological site in the world. Uh, it, it is so well excavated, so well restored. Uh, you feel like you're gonna see Paul walking up the street towards you as you're walking through the ruins of Ephesus. Um, it's there on the coast, on the, on the western coast of Turkey. But Paul's going to um, pass through Ephesus at this point. He's gonna to return to Ephesus uh, on his third missionary journey. And that's where he's gonna spend the, the, the most significant part of that uh, time on the third missionary journey in Ephesus. Because again, it's, 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 it's like Corinth, but bigger than Corinth, more significant Corinth. So you can go to, he could go to Ephesus and the world passed by him there. So he, he, he came to Ephesus and he left them there. Who's them? Priscilla and Aquila. He left them there. Um, they don't have any hair, hair to carry back to Jerusalem. Uh, they left, he left them there. Because again, it's a major center of, of missionary activity. But he himself went to the synagogue and he reasoned with the Jews. He's going to spend a little bit of time in Ephesus. You know, he's going to always find them a synagogue. He's going to always try to convince the Jewish people that Jesus is the Messiah and fulfillment of the Hebrew Bible. So he goes and he reasons with the Jews. He doesn't just go after their emotions. He goes after their intellect. Uh, some preachers just go after emotions. But it's important to also go after the intellect. He reasoned with the Jews. Verse 20, when they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. Uh, I'm sure if he had stayed for a longer period, it's going to happen when he comes back, by the way. If he, had, if he did stay for a longer period, he would, he would have probably gotten beaten by them at some point. But he doesn't stay long enough to irritate them too much on this trip. So when they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. Um, you know, life in God is what happens to mess up our plans. And, and Paul knows that that when we make plans, we're not the only one orchestrating life at that point. So he says, I'll return to you if God, if God wills, if that's in God's plan for him. And he set sail from Ephesus. So, verse 22, when he had landed at Caesarea, uh, that's Caesarea Maritima, it's on the coast, that's where the Roman army was, was usually at, the Roman army that was uh, occupying the region of Judea and Palestine, Palestine, Judea, Galilee, whatever you want to call it. That's Caesarea Maritime. Many of you have been there. That's that beautiful, beautiful location on the coast. Uh, we call it Caesarea Maritima. You hear the word maritime in that. We call it that Caesarea Maritima to differentiate it from Caesarea Philippi, which is up in the north. Anyway, that, that, is, the, that is the port city. Uh, the main port, port city, there was another one. That's the main port city coming into Judea. So they, he lands, he's, he's, he's sailing from Ephesus. He lands at Caesarea Maritima. And watch this, he went up and greeted the church and then he went down to Antioch. 
Now, some of your, when it says he went up and greeted the church, and then he went to Antioch, where does he go up to? Jerusalem. Some of your Bibles, if you have a New Living Translation, uh, the editors help you and just put the word Jerusalem in there. Because it doesn't say Jerusalem, but, you know, Luke writing Acts didn't have to say Jerusalem. When in the ancient world, when you're talking to Jews and you talk about ever, anywhere, at any time, going up to a city, it's always Jerusalem. You always go up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is about 2,500 feet above sea level. So he went up. You can insert the word to Jerusalem. And he greeted the church. This is Mother Church in Jerusalem. And then he went down to Antioch. Um, wish, he would, wish Luke would have told us a little more about what, um, what he did when he went to Jerusalem. We know one thing he did. What was it? Took his hair. Took his hair. See, see I, would, I, I learned when I was teaching at the university, part of teaching New Testament is teaching people to read. So yes, he's taking his hair. Don't forget the context. He's taking his hair, he took it to the temple, he made the offering, he offered it as a thank offering. So he went up and he greeted the church, and then he went down to Antioch. Antioch is the, the base, his, his base for ministry at this point. So verse 23, after spending some time there, he departed, he was checking in. He was checking in with headquarters uh, there in Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed, and he went from one place to the next through the region of Galatian Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. This is the beginning of his third missionary journey. Um, it just gets slipped in here. This is the beginning of his third missionary journey. Uh, he makes this journey, probably takes him um, about four years, from about 53 to 57. Uh, that's five years, isn't it? About five years. He, he, he's on the third missionary journey. So notice... The geography, I'm sure your Bible has maps, it has maps of Paul's journeys. But he's leaving Antioch, he's heading up through what we call Turkey, what they called Asia Minor. Uh, Asia Minor, or what we call Turkey, was, was um, divided into regions such as Galatia and Phrygia. So he's heading up from Syria, heading through Turkey. He's, he's revisiting churches that he had established. He's been in these places before. Uh, remember, the, this is where he was doing ministry when the vision came to him and said, come over to Macedonia, come to Greece. Uh, so this is where he's traveling. He's returning to some of the churches he planted or helped plant. He's strengthening the disciples. He's trying to help them grow, the disciples and all these churches that he planted. Okay, now you're going to get introduced to another, a new character. I, again, he's one of my favorite characters in the, in the New Testament. Because I absolutely love what's said about him. I can't wait to go to heaven to meet him. And he doesn't get a lot of press in the Christian community. Uh, Apollos. Not Apollo, that's a pagan god. But Apollos is a great Christian that you're getting ready to meet in the book of Acts. So, again, he's, um, um, he, he's, he's at Ephesus. Because he's heading across Asia Minor, Turkey. When you get to the western coast, that's where Ephesus is. So he's heading to Ephesus, and when he gets to Ephesus, he's going to meet, uh, he's going to meet somebody. And who did he leave at Ephesus? Priscilla and Aquila. Yeah. So um, they're there, and um, you're going to get introduced to a, a new character now. Look at verse 24. Now a Jew, 
That's important. He's Jewish because you're going to be told where he comes from in a moment. Now, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria. You know that. Where's Alexandria at? Egypt. Again, one of the two or three largest, greatest cities uh, in the Roman Empire, Alexandria. It's in Egypt. It's, at, it's there at the beginning of the Nile. Um, it, it had a huge library had a huge Jewish population in Alexandria. So uh, this person, Apollos, would have been one of those Jews from Alexandria. Now, before you even read, and you're going, it's going to get confirmed as you read, but just knowing that, you can begin to surmise Apollos is going to be educated and brilliant and well-read. He has he read uh, Christian philosophers like Philo of Alexandria. So uh, before you even learn anything about him, you won't have all this confirmed, you're going to see, you just know from where he's coming from. He was Jew, raised in the Greek world, kind of like Paul was raised in Tarsus, you know, Jew raised in the Greek world. Apollos is, is, is Jewish, raised in the Greek world. We call that a Hellenistic Jew, a Greek Jew. So uh, here comes Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. Just notice how he gets described. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. Um, some translations say mighty in the scriptures. I kind of like that, mighty in the scriptures. Now, again, make sure you read what's in front of you. When you're reading the New Testament and you hear the word scriptures or read the word scriptures, what are the scriptures that are being referenced? The Old Testament, that's the only thing they have. They didn't have one of these. They were writing this. The only thing they have is Old Testament. So again, he's a Jew from Alexandria, highly educated, had been educated in the scriptures of his faith, the Hebrew Bible. That's going to become important. Because you're going to see that Apollos had a great, great, great faith. But it wasn't complete. That's why every time somebody says to me, and they usually are talking about somebody else, They'll say, well, he or she believes in God. And I want to say, well, bless their heart, the devil does too. Um, that's not enough. That's not enough to believe in God. Um, you're going to see that Apollos believed in God. He was mighty in the scriptures. He knew the way of God well. You're going to read that. Which would be he knew the Old Testament, the law of Moses, how to live, what God wanted out of, out, out of human beings. Um, but he's incomplete. And uh, Priscilla and Aquila are going to have a conversation with him. It is not enough to just believe in God. Um, you've got to add Jesus to that. You've got to add Jesus to that. You know, people, you know, sometimes when I hear people say, and they're trying to, they're trying to make someone else look better, well, he or she believes in God. Well, again, that doesn't, again, the, de the book of James Quotes, a quote from the book of James reminds us the devil believes in God. The devil knows more about God than we do. The devil's a good theologian. He, he's, that's why when Jesus walked the earth, the first people to recognize Jesus were the demons. So you're just believing in God doesn't get you a lot of traction. You know, there's a lot of people who believe in the man upstairs or supreme being or higher power. And I'm glad that they're, they're in route. I'm glad that they're in route like Apollos. I'm glad they're in route. But they haven't gone where they need to go yet. 
So it's not enough to just believe in God. Uh, here's Apollos. He's mighty in the scriptures. He's been instructed in the way of the Lord. So he knows the details of scripture. He knows what God's will is. And being fervent in spirit, um, teach you something about the Greek language here. Uh, there's no capital, well, in Greek, everything's either written in capital letters or everything's written in small letters. In Greek, you don't have punctuation, you don't have spaces between sentences, and you don't have, you know, some words capitalized to help you understand the meaning of that word. That's why here, like for instance, it says, and being fervent in spirit, I'm curious, my translation has spirit with a little s. Any translations have spirit with a big S? Okay, one. Um, again, you, you're at, your, your translators have to make a call. Is it talking about the Holy Spirit or the human spirit? Uh, when it says being fervent, because it could be being fervent in the Holy Spirit, but it also could mean being fervent in his human spirit, which means enthusiastic. Uh, most translations just assume he was enthusiastic. He is fervent in, in the spirit, little s, his spirit. Um, by the way, the word enthusiasm, entheos, means to be filled with God. That's where enthusiasm comes from. But he's fervent in the spirit. He's fervent. He's probably very enthusiastic. He's, he's, he's eloquent. He's mighty in the scriptures. He knows the will of God as far as is revealed in the Old Testament. He spoke and taught accurately. You can always teach inaccurately. He spoke and he taught accurately the things concerning Jesus as far as Messiah coming and who he's, you know, though he knew only the baptism of John. So you're beginning to see he's incomplete. He even knows something about Jesus. Some of these people who believe in God are fans of Jesus. It's not enough to just be a fan of Jesus. It's not, it's not enough to believe in God and, and, and think the ethical teachings of Jesus are good. It's not enough to believe in God and just think Jesus is a great, great human being, an example for living. That's not bad stuff, but you're just en route at that point. You need to get to the destination. And when it says this Apollos knew only the baptism of John, that's John the Baptist, John the Baptizer. So your brain has to go back to John the Baptizer. Think about the baptism of John the Baptist. It was, remember his preaching, we're getting ready to enter the season of Advent, so you're going to run across John the Baptist a lot during the season of Advent, uh, the precursor, the forerunner of, uh, of the Messiah. Uh, he preached a baptism for the repentance of sin. It was a baptism of repentance. He was calling all of the Jews to go back to the Jordan River and start over. Come back into the Holy Land, do it right this time. So it was a baptism of repentance, a baptism of doing it again, a baptism of changing direction, a baptism of uh, repentance from sin, a baptism where you acknowledge that you're sinful and you need to change your ways. All of that's good. You're still not at the destination. It's, it's another step closer to, to embracing Jesus or to allow yourself to be embraced by Jesus. But so he only knew the baptism of John. In other words, he did not know what the early Christian community was doing with baptism. Um, 
the early Christian community took the baptism of John, took the baptism of the Jewish community, uh, proselyte baptism, and they, they did lots with water and baptism of the Jewish community. What the early Christian community did, they took that and created a baptism that effected and signified entrance into Christ, being baptized in Christ. That's why it's not enough to just have a baptism of repentance for, from your sins. That's, that's a good start. But after you do the negative of repenting from your sins, the positive has to be to be baptized in Christ. So he just knew the baptism of John was not well aware of what the early Christian community was doing with baptism, where the early Christian community was saying your destination should be. I'm sure Apollos, and I love Apollos, he thinks he was at a good place, but he's going to meet Priscilla and Aquila. Look at verse 26. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. I'm grateful for that. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they, does not say he, they, the male and the female, Priscilla and Aquila, they took Apollos aside and they taught him. They preached to him. They explained to him. The way of the God, the way of God more accurately. Um, now, if you think women shouldn't teach men, you need to take that up with Priscilla. Now, you might can equivocate here a little bit and say they were at home. You, Priscilla wasn't teaching um, Apollos publicly. Um, the other thing might be going on here, and I, I appreciate that Priscilla and Aquila, when Priscilla and Aquila need to straighten Apollos out, which is what you want to do, tell him how incomplete he is, they do it privately. I hope you have that skill. You know, I got a lot of employees upstairs. I never correct them in front of anybody else. Always protect people's grace. Always protect people's dignity. And if you have to correct, do it privately. Um, all the staff here, when I ask them to come to my office, they say it's like being called to the principal's office. <laughs> I just want to say something nice to them. Um, but they also know that I learned something from, from Nito Quibane. I usually go to their office because if I go to their office, I can walk away when I want to. Don't tell Nito I told you that. But that's just something you learn over life. So, yeah, that's why if I call them to my office, they know we're going to have a conversation. If I just have something to tell them, I'll go to their office and tell them walk back out and stay busy. Anyway, you should protect people's dignity, protect people's grace. So I'm, I'm grateful that Priscilla and Aquila, that they, knew that they, they, knew, they knew Apollos needed a Bible study. So they took him aside, and they both explained to him the, the way of God more accurately. So they explained to him death, burial, resurrection, ascension, coming of the Holy Spirit. That's the stuff that, they, that he did not know about Jesus. You know, they knew that he had been baptized by John. They knew that he, had, he, they, he probably knew that he had been a great Galilean preacher. But, you know, it's the end of the story that matters most. That's why if you look at the Gospel of Mark, Half of it is the last week of Jesus' ministry. The other three years get pretty short shrift 
in the Gospel of Mark. And all the other Gospels pretty much do the same thing. If you look at the amount of attention the Gospels <coughs> give to the last week, look at, look, look at Luke. Luke's Gospel is 24 chapters. At the end of chapter 9, that's when he starts his journey to Jerusalem to die. Now, he has a lot of neat things happens and happens, happens in route to Jerusalem. But what the Gospels are there for, it's not about those first three years. They're important. It's that last week, which we call Holy Week. And that's why what Apollos evidently didn't understand was death, burial, resurrection, ascension of Jesus, and then the return of the Spirit of Jesus at Pentecost. But I'm grateful that um, Priscilla and Aquila uh, set him down and they, they, they explained to him the way of God more accurately. Again, there's a second occurrence of the word accurately in this text. Uh, people can preach and be preaching inaccurately, obviously. So they explained to, to Apollos accurately. Look at verse 27. And when he wished to cross, cross to Achaia, Achaia is that southern region of Greece, he's going to Corinth. And we know a lot about, not a lot, but we know some interesting things about him at Corinth. So he's going to leave Ephesus, sail across the water, and go, go to Corinth. Um, and when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him, and they wrote to the disciples to welcome him. In other words, and we see this happening in the New Testament, they sent him to Corinth with letters of recommendation. Uh, that was a common thing in the ancient world. So that, that's how you introduce somebody to a new group of people. So they, they, he went and he took these letters with him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. You know, if you believe, it's through grace. If you're in Christ today, it wasn't because you just got smart enough one day to do it. Uh, if you're in Christ, it's because you finally allowed yourself to be captured by him. If you're in Christ, he has been, he had been chasing you before you finally yielded your, your, your tools of rebellion and allowed him to capture you. That's why when, if you're in Christ, you should be eternally grateful because it's, it's, it's because he captured you. We're not smart enough to go hunt him down. But anyway, so he, he helps those greatly who through grace have believed. For he powerfully refuted, and this is an interesting verse, he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, public debates. That's what's going on here. Again, a characteristic of the ancient world. For he powerfully refuted the, the Jews in public, in public debates, uh, showing by the scriptures that Christ was Jesus, or Jesus was Christ. Christ is the word Messiah. He's, he's showing, he's got the full picture now. He's showing that Jesus is the Messiah, and, and the key component of understanding that is death, burial, resurrection, ascension, Pentecost, and what that means, what it is that Jesus has done. So he, he, is, he is powerfully, you can almost translate this, he crushed the Jews in debate. I enjoy watching debates, and I really like debates when, when my side crushes the other side in a debate, and that's, that's what he's doing. Um, so that's Apollos. One of the things we know, again, we've got two letters where Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. And in those two letters where Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, we learn a lot of history, if you read carefully, about what was going on. Uh, one of the things you learn um, in, in, uh, in, in, in 2 Corinthians, you learn that um, one of the reasons Paul's writing them back is divisions had arisen. 
in, in Corinth. And there's that verse early on in 2 Corinthians where Paul, and he's, he's trying to straighten the Corinthians out. He's, you know, he says, you folks are saying, I am of Apollos. I am of Paul. I'm of Christ. I'm the really spiritual one. And, and he says, you shouldn't do that. You know, Paulos is not one camp that's opposed to the camp of Paul, who's opposed to the camp of Christ, obviously. He says, you know, we're all, we're not competing. Evidently what happened was, and Paul, and Paul actually says when he writes to the church at Corinth, I did not come proclaiming the message to you uh, with, with great oratorical skill. Uh, my presence was weak. My words were weak. So he's doing that. He's saying that because they've experienced Apollos now. And when Apollos showed up in Corinth, they thought the real thing had come in compared to the preaching and the teaching of Paul. And that's why he corrects them because they're saying, they're, they're dividing into groups. You know, there's Apollos' followers and Paul's followers. And, and that's where he says, um, Apollos, Apollos, I planted, Apollos watered, and God gave the increase. We're, we're doing this together. But evidently, Apollos made a huge splash when he went to Corinth. And um, I like Apollos. I can't wait to meet him one day. Because uh, I love it. And this is, this is some of the Wesleyan in me. I love it when a great intellect gets inflamed with the Holy Spirit. One of my favorite quotations from a Wesley hymn is, and there's such a need for this in the body of Christ. The, the quotation is, let us unite the two so long divided, vital piety and knowledge. Yeah, we, we, we tend in church to separate out. You got the spiritual crowd and you got the smart crowd. Spiritual crowd and the intellectual crowd. I grew up in the church, in a church, that I, I'm very grateful for the church I grew up in. But when I went to seminary, well, they were very, they were adamant with my parents that I had lost the faith. I was going to be tainted and I was going to be indoctrinated. It was, you know, if you're spiritual, just get up and let it rip. Get up and preach. You know, some of us, though, say you need the Spirit, but you got to give the Spirit something to work with. So let's unite the two. Vital piety. That's holiness, spirituality, the fire and flame of the Holy Spirit, and knowledge. Yeah, you know, we, you know, I'm grateful as a Christian we don't have to check our brain at the door. Now, some Christians like checking their brain at the door. Um, you know, they, they know, they know a couple of passages from the gospel. They know 1 Corinthians 13. And they can sing, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And they're fine. That's it. That's all they want to know. And again, that gets you into heaven. But yeah, Apollos wouldn't be happy with you. You know, you need to unite the two so long divided, vital, spirit-filled piety and knowledge. And um, when the church has been strong throughout our history, uh, we, we've... It's been in those moments when we've kind of connected those two. When the church has been weak, weakest, is when we don't connect those two. And again, the reason I said Wesleyan, John Wesley was a revival preacher. And what else? An Oxford scholar. 
he was able to be a revival preacher because he, he received a stipend as a fellow of Lincoln College, Oxford for his life. Um, that's the way it worked back then. So he technically was employed by Oxford while he was running around doing scholarship, doing, doing revivals. Uh, to me, that's, that's what we're after. That's what we're after. But the church gets very weak when knowledge falls away and it just becomes feeling and emotion. That ends up in a couple places as you look at the history of the church. It ends up with a faith that's simply emotion. If I don't feel Jesus, Jesus is not here. If I don't feel saved, I'm not saved. If I don't feel worshipful, I can't worship. Bad place to be. So some parts of the church, when they, when they uh, idolize emotions, they go there. The, another part of the church, when they idolize emotions, they go to a different place, but it's the same issue. The place they go to is, well, how can I illustrate this? If it's love, can it ever be wrong? It feels so good. This is who I am. Affirm me, celebrate me. Yeah, I mean, that, that's, the, that's another place you... I'd rather you end up as kind of a religious fanatic than just a full-blown narcissist over here, you know, telling everybody, well, this is the way I feel. This is what my gut tells me. This is, and, and you, you kind of see where different churches are at different places, but either one of those, you're doing the same thing. You're separating vital piety from knowledge. And usually you're elevating emotion, personal desire, personal pleasure, whatever, um, at the expense of truth, at the expense of truth. You've got to keep the two tied together. Um, I think Apollos is a good example of that. The rest of them are too in the New Testament. That's, that's why Priscilla, Priscilla and Aquila could add to and help develop Apollos. He just needed, he had, you know, he had religion 101. He needed to go on to the Jesus stuff and go beyond knowing about Jesus to knowing Jesus as Redeemer, Savior, the one who died by, is by his merit. Again, that death, burial, and resurrection stuff. Uh, he had to learn that. So what he knew was fine. He just needed to add something to it. Uh, that's why a lot of people, if you just believe in the man upstairs, if you believe in God, I, I'm grateful for that, but don't stop there. I mean, again, the devil believes in God. The devil's a great theologian. Um, so anyway, um, we will go to Ephesus next week and finish. Uh, we'll, we'll get into it. We won't finish. But he spends a lot, Paul spends a long time in Ephesus. Uh, his longest period he spent anywhere, he spent in Ephesus. So good stopping place. Let's pray together. God, I'm grateful for these people that want to know you and want to know you better. We're grateful for the ways that you're working in our lives and you're helping us to grow up into the image of Jesus Christ. Lord, may we allow all of our goals, all of our dreams, all of our aspirations, all of our wants, all of our wishes to be formed by you. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Have a good rest of the week.